21 million Americans have a drug or alcohol addiction. In fact, addiction is more common than cancer. For decades, the phenomenon has been viewed in society as a moral failing. But neuroscientists are making new discoveries about how addiction actually hijacks the brain's neural pathways, and they're researching treatments that could offer an escape. On today's Please Explain, we're learning about the science of the addicted brain with Fran Smith, a writer and editor, whose article, The Science of Addiction, is the cover story for the September issue of National Geographic. Also joining the conversation is Dr. Rita Goldstein, Chief of the Neuropsychoimaging of Addiction and Related Conditions, or NARC, research program at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Goldstein is an expert featured in the article, and I'm pleased to welcome them both to today's Please Explain. Did I pronounce your name right? Goldstein or Goldstein? Goldstein is good. Okay. Uh, uh, and we invite you, the listener, to join the conversation. The number to call is 212-433-9692. Do you have questions about the science of addiction? Give us a call. Share your experience. Share what you've learned and put a question to our experts. And Fran, I want to start with you. You report that drug overdoses are now a leading cause of death among Americans under the age of 50. Is there a connection between age, brain development, and addiction? Well, um, there is a connection between age, brain development, and addiction. Most people who struggle with addiction um, in, at any time in life, most adults really began drug use, heavy drug use, at uh, at a young age, at, as adolescents or as, as uh, very young adults, and there. There are, very, there are complicated reasons for that, and we don't know all the reasons for that, but we do know that the part of the brain that the reward system, a part of the brain that really craves things and is very responsive to rewards, develops young. And the part of the brain in the front of the brain the, that allows you to tamp down those desires, control those desires, make good decisions, use your judgment, that develops later in life. So there's this disconnect. I, I'd like to, Rita to jump in on that. Yeah, definitely. I would like also to mention prenatal influences. So that type of effect, the interaction between age and development starts even before people are born. And if people are exposed to something like nicotine, for example, in utero, then they have a predisposition for substance abuse later in life, for adolescent substance abuse, because- That's what the research shows. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So basically, as a group, so we are not looking at one individual at a time, but we are comparing individuals, groups of individuals. And one risk factor that I'm just mentioning that is relevant to this question of age and development is exposure to something like nicotine in utero. And then people have thinner orbitofrontal cortical regions, that part of the brain in the front of the cortex that is associated with the ability to make the right decisions, advantageous decisions. And when you have a thinner cortex there, you're predisposed to substance abuse later on in life. That is one risk factor for developing drug addiction later on. Now, Fran, you begin your Nat Geo article with a really interesting anecdote about a uh, a man in Italy named uh, Patrick who had been had a co cocaine habit on and off for years and basically was in some ways able to lead a normal life, but it was kind of sapping his life and his ability to do things. And he goes in for a um, rehab hasn't worked and he goes in for some kind of electromagnetic treatment. And that seemed to be effective. Now, that was news to me. What was the treatment that he underwent? And, and what do we know about why it seems to have worked? Well, the treatment uses a current to basically 
change the electrical patterns in the brain. And it's a treatment that's already approved and used for depression and for migraines. So it's not a new treatment. It's it's new and, and experimental in addiction. And Patrick was an amazing story because he had had a long time, decades, cocaine addiction. And and really, it, it trashed his life. He had a business. He had a family. And, and he lost all of it to, to the addiction and tried. And his mother heard about this study that was being done and urged him to go and he was just so desperate that he you know he thought it was ridiculous but he thought he had nothing to lose and he tried the treatment and you know it is sort of a, a, a miraculous kind of story because he's drug free it's changed his life and and nobody really knows why it works but there's a a um, a theory they're, they're they're targeting pathways of the brain this this frontal region and this theory that it's activating neural pathways that have been damaged um, and allowing him to better control the impulses. Um, now, you know, I just want to say it's 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 an anecdote. It's a story, and and a te- this technique and and other things that I write about really have to be validated by large controlled studies. This hasn't yet been, um, but it was a really amazing story. We are talking about the science of addiction, uh, and this is please explain. So that means we want your questions. The number to call is two one two four three three nine six nine two two one two four three three. WNYC. Uh, your questions for two experts on addiction, uh, particularly Dr. Rita Goldstein. You work, at, I had to study how to say this word, um, neuropsychoimaging, but that is your area. What it, What is that? It's basically emphasizing the importance to addiction of neuroimaging. So basically looking at brain activity, uh, but not forgetting that addiction has to do with neuropsychological type of uh, characteristics, higher order functions, executive functions, decision making, judgment, attention, memory, learning. So those are the neuropsychological components we're trying to understand and how they contribute to the clinical symptoms of addiction that have to do with this repeated drug self-reinforcement, craving, binging, withdrawal, and relapse. It's a chronically relapsing disorder. But we're trying to understand the mechanisms underlying this disorder that have to do with neuropsychological mechanisms. We are using neuroimaging tools. So that's the neuropsychoimaging components that we are focusing on in understanding addiction. So your tool is brain scans. That's what you look at all day to try to understand this. Yes. And during those brain scans, we're focusing not only on brain structure, so morphological integrity, gray matter, white matter, but also on brain function. And we can use that with, we can look at that with imaging, with scans, fMRI, for example, or event-related potentials, EEG. But also outside the scanner, we can gain a lot of information by neuropsychological tools. And those are paper and pencil and computerized tasks of learning, memory, attention, decision-making, all of these then uh, compile into a picture of the psychological profile of an individual that we can then understand how those type of characteristics contribute to addiction and to the ability to abstain or to the propensity to relapse. Let's take a call. Uh, Let's hear from Maggie in Morningside Heights. Hello. Hi, Maggie. What's your question? Hi. So I'm curious to know from either of the guests about what's happening at the level of public policy discussions in terms of what is making people so vulnerable to opioid addiction. And what I'm thinking about in particular is the 
there's a lot of evidence now that opioids are involved with social relationships and a feeling of bonding and a feeling of well-being. This especially was uh, from the work of Yak Panksup, who did a lot of work in this area. So I've, there are many different components to what generates the addictive mechanism, but I think it's very uh, striking that so many people are now becoming vulnerable to opioid addiction. And it's not just the effect of the external opiates. It must have something to do with people's vulnerability to the relief that they get from the opioids. Dr. Goldstein? Yeah, so I mentioned one risk factor. Um, there are many other risk factors, some of them genetic, some of them environmental influences during infancy and childhood. And that in interaction can create a pattern of more or less vulnerability to substance use and then addiction. But drugs also have direct impact on the brain that even a person who is extremely resilient still can become addicted later on with, an, with exposure to drugs. Now, a concept that is really important in addiction is the fact that people who become addicted, they use drugs not for the high and not for the reward, but actually to alleviate pain and to alleviate pain of withdrawal or the pain of some kind of an underlying deficit, whether it is in their social interactions or some mood dysregulation, anxiety, depression, many other type of psychopathologies that are self-medicated by drugs, whether opiates or stimulants or alcohol or other drugs. And what we have to do in terms of policy change, we have to think about how to help people with addiction to medicate themselves, but with the right medications for the right symptoms and with medications that don't have the long-term consequences that are associated with opiates and cocaine and crack cocaine and all of the drugs that we know. And uh, opiates are among the most addictive classes of drugs that we know of, is that right? It is the number one drug in terms of the severity of dependence and the harm that it causes. Uh, but in terms of relapse, for example, nicotine would be number one drug. So people don't treat nicotine as a drug, well, it certainly is. Let's hear from Eric in Long Island. Eric, you're on the air. Uh, hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, so I, I have addiction. I've been uh, sober for a few years, and I've done a lot of research on the uh, epigenetic causes of addiction because I definitely am predisposed. I didn't have a uh, tough childhood or anything, but I couldn't stop using once I started. And so um, from what I can understand, the number one cause of addiction across all drugs and behaviors is the buildup of delta phosb, b which has a longer half-life than regular phosb. b And um, I saw that there's a potential to use histone deacetylase inhibitors to stop the production of delta phosb b by increasing other uh, transcription factors in the brain. But this seems to be well understood in animal and human, or not human, but animal models for sure. But I haven't seen any human studies, and I rarely, if ever, hear it from professionals. Eric, what was so the name of that substance? Yeah. It was it was not familiar to me. Yeah, De Delta well, uh, something. Not familiar to most people. Yeah, what was the name? Delta Fos B. Delta Fos B. It's a truncated splice variant of regular Fos B, which is a protein that kind of um, gives uh, neurons um, extra juice to kind of uh, grow. It's almost like a, a fertilizer for them. But Fos is that familiar B to either of, like of you? Well, <clears throat> so right now we don't have. Um, so my expertise is in imaging using MRI, but there is also positron emission tomography, and I know there is the development of radioligands that will be able to image this type of proteins, but we're not there yet. But there are some labs that are definitely looking at epigenetics and trying to image it in the in vivo in the human brain, but it's not there yet. 
Fran, does understanding the causes of addiction matter to people who struggle with addiction in a, in a special way? Uh, Eric said he had a good childhood, and so he and so he's looking for an explanation. Is that something that you heard a lot in doing your research? Uh, I heard that a lot, and I heard it actually in two different ways. Um, one of the things we talk about in the story, and that researchers and the medical community talks about is is addiction as a disease. It's not a moral failing. And some people that I talk to actually feel kind of trapped by that, that it's a disease. So how do you exert free will to overcome that disease? Uh, More people that I've talked with actually felt relieved to hear, to think, not just to hear it because people have been saying it for a while, but to understand what's going on in the brain. I, I talk, I write about a man in South Carolina who ended up in the hospital after uh, this a three-day gin binge and has tried to quit alcohol, relapsed, tried, and, and part of the program there was really teaching people about what's going on in the brain. And it, it really lifted the shame for him. And that was huge in his ability to to pursue a course of recovery that involved both medication and psychological strategies. And Fran, you write that there has long been sort of a split in the ways that we look at treatment, uh, which I guess is perhaps reflected by, by the different attitudes you just described, where one path says, let's let's find external ways to treat this, whether through drugs or electrotherapy or something like that. And the other school that says, it's meditation and turning inward and and understanding yourself that's going to be the pathway. Are those two always going to be a little two approaches always going to be somewhat in conflict? I think there are there at the at the far edges, there's conflict in the middle. It's a matter of where you put the weight. I think a lot of people in treatment where wherever they fall, whether they're on the more psychological end support group end or on the on the medical end, see that, we need a combination. Most people need a combination. Um, there still is real resistance, you know, in 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 some treatment programs to the idea that you treat drug addiction by giving people drugs. So that's that's a hurdle that that people are trying to overcome. And actually, I th- I think there's been a shift now with the opioid problem because it's really really clear that medication assisted treatment reduces the death rate. So, you know, people are just really, really benefit from You're talking that. about like naloxone and, and, and treatments like that? Uh, suboxone, not not just medication to stop an overdose, but, but, but medication-assisted treatment like methadone to reduce the craving, um, help you live your life without being constantly high and, and get on with the psychological work that you need to do to, to overcome the addiction. So to follow up on the uh, caller's question, <clears throat> what ha- and to all the points that are raised now, especially vis-a-vis self-medication, what has been shown with human neuroimaging and p- PET studies, positron emission tomography, that the one commonality across all drugs of abuse in people who are addicted to those drugs is a reduced dopamine receptor availability at the striatal level. And um, that has been associated with a reduced dopamine neurotransmission and dopamine function that is then related to the need to self-administer drugs to at least temporarily try to normalize your own dopaminergic function. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that we need for all everything that we do every day, motivation, reward processing, salience attribution, value type of the, the ability to decide what's valuable, what's less valuable, what can wait, what needs to be done now, learning and memory. 
Um, so that has been shown at the level of human imaging studies across substances in people with addiction to drugs, but also in, for example, obesity. And there is that resistance to medicate people with addiction because of this attribution of addiction to a disease, of, to a self-will type of disease, to a moral failure. But if we think about it as a medical problem, we do have some medications that are working in opiate addiction, in alcohol, in people with nicotine. And we don't ask people, for example, with diabetes to just live through it and manage it only with behavioral approaches. We have medication and we need to use all of the above together with psychological and cognitive training, together with all kind of uh, other novel exercises to really reduce this lethal problem that we're facing. I'm Ilya Meritz. In today for Leonard Lopate, our latest Please Explain is all about the science of addiction with the journalist Farron Smith and Dr. Rita Goldstein, professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at Mount Sinai. We are taking your calls. The number to call is, uh, where do I have the number to call? 212-433-9692, 433-9692. This is WNYC and WNYC.org. We're also available as a podcast, and we'll be right back with more of your calls after a break. And we are back with Please Explain. This week we are talking about the science of addiction. My guests are Fran Smith, a contributor to National Geographic, and Dr. Rita Goldstein from Mount Sinai. Uh, Let's take more of your calls. Um, Let's hear from Jan in New Jersey. Jan, you are on WNYC. Jan, are you there? Hold on. Can you hear me? I hear you now. Okay. I was wondering if the doctors think that you can treat anxiety the way you treat other addictions. Is there a connection in brain science, the regions of the brain between anxiety and and other addictions? Certainly the two can go hand in hand. Absolutely. And people med- self-medicate for anxiety, for example, with alcohol. Alcohol is known to reduce social anxiety. Um, so... But usually for anxiety, the treatment is with something like SSRIs, so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. There is a, a lot of other medications. Uh, so And it's better to go for those type of medications instead of alcohol because alcohol has direct effects on the brain in, 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 a, in a way that is very detrimental and later on actually increases anxiety. So the effect is opposite to what is desired. Uh, we have another call, Hal in Park Slope. Hal, you are on WNYC. Hi, thanks very much for taking my call. Um, I wanted to introduce a couple things. Um, I noticed that uh, uh, sex addiction and love addiction have not been included in the discussion at all. And um, uh, uh, my own experience in other addictions is they often lead to that. As a matter of fact, they lead back and forth. Uh, when you kick one, you, you uh, out of desperation, you know, start eating like crazy and watching TV, but then you, you do more. So I think it belongs in the discussion. I would argue that the, the terrible rate of relapse is probably stronger than cigarettes. Uh, I know uh, in alcohol and drug, the success rate is it's so different because it's a, it's a thing out there. Whereas uh, sexuality is within you and you want to control it, it's a, it's a very different fight. 
Uh, but devastates lives, I think, equally. Fran, the notion of sex addiction, I think, is still controversial, isn't it? It's it's still controversial to the medical establishment, but it's a it's a really important point to bring up because there has been a huge shift in thinking about addiction, and there is now a recognition that at least certain kinds of compulsive behaviors, and the one that that the psychiatric establishment recognizes is gambling, uh, but that behaviors can be addictive. And that was something that was just a non-starter even, you know, 15 years ago. Um, So there is, the World Health Organization is looking very closely at sex addiction and and how to think about that, how to think about it as an addiction or as a a compulsive disorder. And there's, um, Dr. Goldstein mentioned obesity earlier. Food is also controversial, but there's certainly very strong evidence out of the lab that food, that, that that the brain and, and that uh, animals and people can react to certain foods the same way that we react to certain drugs. Is there a danger, though, that we may pathologize what is, in fact, normal human behavior? It, 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 unfortunate but true, people seem to think about sex all the time, whether you know whether or not they would say that they're addicted. Well, that's it's a great question and it's really important to think about that the way the definition of addiction really is it's not necessarily about physical dependence and withdrawal and and tolerance but 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 addiction means the compulsive pursuit of an activity or a substance despite life damaging consequences so you have to think about the consequences so if you think about sex all the time and the consequences are pretty great you know you're probably not addicted to sex but as the caller said earlier you know it it, it can be devastating to somebody and that's when there's a problem so the addiction is really when it interferes with the rest of life and starts uh, making you make decisions that you regret exactly and when you lose pleasure so that's, I think, one of the problems that we have a hard time accepting addiction as a disease is that all of these behaviors, once we all experience, or some of us still do, many of the frequency of substance use and abuse in adolescence is very high. Most of us experience some drugs, most of us experience sex, but most of us are not addicted. And it's very hard to realize that, okay, because I did all of this, but I did not become addicted, how come other people do become? And it's only a small percentage of people who are using regularly drugs that become addicted. And like Fran was saying, addiction is not about a certain behavior. It's about the compulsive use of a certain drug or a certain behavior, despite catastrophic consequences to the individual's life, and despite a decrease in pleasure that's derived from either the drug or the behavior. So this is an interesting idea. Are you saying that even you know, hard drugs, the things that children are warned to stay away from, may not be addictive for most people, that many people could use those drugs recreationally from time to time and not really suffer ill consequences. Statistically speaking, that's the reality. Most people that tried or use or even are occasional users or even use it frequently, they do not become addicted. Statistically, only a minority becomes addicted. Elizabeth is in the line uh, in Washington Heights. Elizabeth, what's your question? Hi, yeah, good afternoon. So um, I have a parent who is uh, 70-something years old. Uh, she's a uh, you know, functioning, well, alcoholic. Uh, recently we discovered um, through a surgery she had that she's um, seriously addicted to opioids. Um, so it's something we talked about. And she doesn't 
I guess, how does, like I said, she's functioning over 30 years. I imagine a lot of people are working. So what is the damage, um, I guess, to the brain, to the body for someone who is ingesting drugs and has been and seemingly, you know, they do get on in life. And I know for a fact that, you know, it's um, she's it's compulsive. She has to drink or take drugs. And um, and I don't think it's particularly pleasurable. Um, but Elizabeth, this has been going on for for many years, for many years of mm-hmm. your life as well. Well, many. And what's interesting is I would say that my my mother didn't discover um, drugs till later in life not as a teenager so and it sounds like she is uh, i don't know if high functioning is the word to use for somebody who's in their 70s but it sounds like it hasn't in fact disrupted her life so much uh you know not in the ways i mean she she's to everybody she's she's you know yeah she gets on and she's doing everything that she needs to do and um has hidden it very well but i guess yeah i guess my question is for someone who is like that, who's definitely an addict because she needs to take it. I mean, she says maybe it's pain or this, and she is managing different types of pains, but I also know just the fact that she's had other addictions throughout her life, that she is an addict. Um, you know, what... <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely reading the article when it comes out, but... Uh, well, the, it's, it's out now. It's the September oh, issue of, Nat- of Nat- National Geographic. D- Dr. Goldstein, so, yeah, what questions... So, so, Dr. Goldstein, what questions would you have for Elizabeth and for her mother? So, uh, basically, I would like to make another point, and that's of dependence. Uh, two points. One is that of dependence. So, people who use certain drugs develop dependence on opiates, for example. So, if you have some kind of a car accident, you go to the hospital, you are exposed to morphine, you become dependent, and you can see it by the fact that you need more and more of the dose to achieve the same alleviating effect. So, you, you develop tolerance. And if you discontinue it abruptly, you will become, you will uh, develop withdrawal. But that type of dependence on the drug is not equal to addiction. And I explained how addiction is different in terms of the catastrophic consequences and the loss of pleasure that is associated with addiction. Having said that, uh, sometimes there are very gray areas. And how do we define addiction? How do we decide if that person is actually addicted or dependent? If there is dependent, there is definitely dependence. We all are dependent, or many of us, on, on caffeine. Many of us use drugs to alleviate anxiety, depression. There is definitely dependence there too. But that actually enhances our function. It helps us. Um, so, uh, but I'm not sure case by case if there is a concern. And enough that there is a concern, I would definitely go to get it evaluated. Uh, uh, Fran, did you want to jump in? Did you have a point there? No, I think that was a really important distinction to make. And it was actually something that took me a while to get my brain around is the distinction between dependence and addiction. And we can uh, still take your calls. The number to call is 212-433-9692, 212-433-9692, with your questions for Dr. Rita Goldstein and Fran Smith. Um, so much of your article, is Fran, is devoted to understanding dopamine and the role it plays in the brain. And it seems like we 
we know it's important, but we haven't figured out everything that it does just yet. What's going on with dopamine research? Well, it does seem that the more we learn about it, the more we realize we don't know about it. And it's um, drugs of abuse, substances of, of abuse affect the brain in different ways, but they all cause this spike in dopamine and the spike and then dip, spike and dip. And, and that triggers a cascade of changes and um, that really change how your brain focuses attention, uh, changes your ability, you know, focuses attention on that object that you want. So uh, people describe dopamine in different ways. Um, uh, they, people say it's it's about pleasure. Other people say it's less about pleasure, but it's about desire. Other people say it's about anticipation. But whatever it is, it's this motivating. It it it, it gives a motivating pull to this object. And and you know, as Dr. Goldstein said earlier, you know, we need it. I mean, that's how we we evolved. You know, and 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 as as pre-evolutionary creatures, you know, food and sex and all those things that, that are, you know, important for survival. So so it's essential in that way. The, the really compelling thing to me in writing about addiction was to realize how this, all these exquisite mechanisms that have evolved to, to help us survive and thrive in this world get kind of turned in on themselves. Because because of the way the drug takes advantage of those of those capabilities, but but turns it inside out, so it becomes kind of a, a force of self destruction as opposed to a force of survival. We have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, with this, please explain on the science of drug addiction. Jack is on the line in Manhattan. Jack, what is your question about the science of addiction? Uh, I was wondering about marijuana. It, it's not nicotine, but. Uh, I've, I've known people who feel completely uh, addicted to it, and apparently they they just don't feel they can function without it. Uh, but what does it do to them in terms of their uh, brain functions, actually, uh, over the long run? So marijuana is um, unique in several ways, uh, but similarly to cocaine, it's number two. It's the second after cocaine in terms of leading people to emergency department visits, actually. Really? Uh-huh. And, um, and it, has, it used to be associated with the thought that there is no addiction to marijuana because it's very widespread. People usually don't feel the withdrawal effects. There is, there is a perception that it's mild. Uh, with the years, though, the, it's the ratio of THC to T CBD. So there are ingredients that are of most potency in the marijuana, and that has changed since the 70s. Uh, and we definitely have to understand more, especially now with legalization of marijuana. I'm Ilya Meritz, in for Leonard Lopate. I've been speaking with Dr. Rita Goldstein, professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at Mount Sinai, and also the journalist Fran Smith, whose latest article in National Geographic is The Science of Addiction. Thank you both very much for joining me. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us.